Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Refresh, rebrand, reset. That's Boris Johnson's plan, or so he says. But will the dramatic departure of Dominic Cummings from number 10 really signal a new style of government? And can this Prime Minister really relaunch his premiership? We're going to take a look at what Johnson is trying to do and what he should do to make this reset count. He's going to have to make a decision on Brexit, of course, and very soon. There are just weeks to go until the end of the transition period, and still that familiar question, deal or no deal, is yet to be answered. We'll take stock as crunch time approaches. And then we're going to take a look at an area so beloved to Dominic Cummings, and that's the use of digital technology in government. A new IFG paper weighs up how well the government has done on this front during the coronavirus crisis, and its author is going to beam into our virtual studio for a chat. So joining me in that studio today is a terrific lineup of guests. Welcome back to Alex Thomas, who leads our civil service work. Hi, Alex. Hi, Bronwyn. We're joined again by Jill Rutter, IFG senior fellow and a one-time civil servant right at the heart of government. Hi, Jill. Hi, Bronwyn. Great to be back. And we've also got John McTernan, also an IFG senior fellow and former advisor at the heart of government. John, good to have you with us. It's great to be back. Let's start with a grand reset, which is how the Prime Minister would like to use recent explosive changes in Downing Street leading to the exit of his chief strategist. His heralds, so number 10 would like us to think, a softer Downing Street and a Prime Minister focus once more on his levelling up agenda and on a vision to turn Britain green. And there are factors helping him achieve a sense of a new beginning, if he can grasp it, a new US president, almost certainly, a vaccine, probably, and that would have been an astonishing statement even a few months ago and a Brexit resolution, possibly. Alex, you and I wrote a paper this week setting out the 10 things that Johnson could do to reset his premiership. What does he need to get right? A series of things. This is a significant moment of change, potentially, I'd say. And and, and the main point uh, we were making, Bronwyn, was that he needs to get this uh, next phase right. So you know, the first thing is to sort out number 10, make some rapid changes, appoint a chief of staff as quickly as possible. And then there are questions of substance and questions of style. I won't run through the, 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 the full list of uh, 10, but, oh, but no. in, in, in style, it's about a calmer, more authoritative tone, appointing cabinet ministers based on uh, skill, experience and competence and not uh, a blind loyalty to, to, to Brexit, presenting his government in, in that way. In substance, it's it's about the detail. It's about uh, putting flesh on these phrases that we've heard so much over the last year or so, levelling up and so on. Um, he needs to actually, as he started to do this week with the pretty impressive uh, package on, uh, on net zero and, and, and climate and then announcements today about uh, defence funding, to start to put flesh on, on on the bones of, of, of those phrases. Um, it's not going to be easy, though. There's, uh, as you said, Bronwyn, there's uh, all sorts of um, political and policy problems ahead on, on Brexit. Uh, there's an almighty economic crunch coming. So he, uh, he needs to use this, this, this moment as an, as an inflection point and, and, and get that right, because there are going to be some real challenges ahead. As you say, I mean, we can see some of the challenges. We can see Brexit. We can see an enormous knot of economic problems. We can see the devolution and the Scotland problems. And then, as you said, there's ones that the government wants to do, like net zero and the levelling up. Um, So this is, you know, this is going to be a big, big year for him. 
Absolutely, and and um, you know, twenty twenty one is is going to need to have a very different tone and, and, and approach to twenty twenty. Um, the you know, people talk about the sort of sunny optimism of Boris Johnson when he was London Mayor. Uh, we, we'll see. I mean, the, the critical thing for him, though, and you know, see, we're talking as the whole of government, and there's a, a you know extraordinary amount of uh, 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 work to do. But the critical thing, I think, for the Prime Minister is to keep that focus. The the, the biggest political and personnel question to me is: Can Boris Johnson? Keep a focus, uh, you know, as as has begun this week, and present himself as a, a new figure and really take control and have the discipline to follow that through. John, from your experience, can prime ministers really reset, or is it? You know, I mean, we're told on one hand, you know, week is a long time in politics and things can always be rewritten. On the other hand, there comes a point when, in terms of controlling the the narrative, it becomes game over. Where are we? Speaking as a middle-aged man, I can tell you middle-aged men don't find it very easy to change. So all this... Enormous generalisation. All all these people who are pouring this intense hope into the notion that that Boris will now be Boris. He's been being Boris all the time. And this is is deja vu all over again, isn't it? This is just like Theresa May sacking her two main advisors and everybody thought it was all going to be fine after that. It wasn't the advisers that were the problem. It was the prime minister that was the problem. The same with Boris Johnson. Boris appointed Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings for a reason. He had them close for a reason. And Alex said, you know, if he can keep a focus, he's had a handful of days since he uh, sacked his senior advisor uh, and his head of communic- communications. And he immediately misspoke himself on Scottish devolution, a, mass- ma- a, mass- a massive gaffe. So, can, can PMs reset? The answer is no, because by the time they've got to where they are, they are who they are as people, as politicians, mm-hmm. as characters. The style of working is the style of working. And it, it, it did work in one way. Uh, he is a great campaigner. Um, and there are many politicians who are great campaigners who then get themselves the top job, but then don't know what to do whether they're in the top job because governing uh, as you said in your reset paper, governing is not campaigning. I share a lot of uh, John's scepticism. It's 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 worth saying. I I do think though the I mean the the, the, the Theresa May example is a little bit different because she had just lost an election. I don't think anyone, as uh, someone who was uh, in the bunker at the time, nobody expected following that um, that uh, election result things to uh, dramatically uh, change. You know, prime ministers can reset if. Uh, they're resetting to something that is true to them. You know, think about Thatcher in the uh, in the early eighties. Um, okay, it was a it was a policy shift as well. But when she took for more control of her government in the early nineteen eighties, got rid of the uh, wets and um, changed the tone of her administration, that worked because it seemed to me it was sort of revealing something about her. The big question, of course, as as John said, is 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 uh, uh, what it reveals about Boris Johnson. But if we go to your two points of substance, the announcements on the green economy were simply a reprofiling of, of um, existing capital spend and re-announcements of things. And the defence spending is a classic of the Johnson. So in February, we're told we're going to get the deepest and most fundamental rethinking of security and defence since the Cold War, which will set out our priorities. You get an amalgamation, you get FCDO created, you get all of this done. And then what happens? The cart before the horse, the spending is announced before the prioritization has been revealed, before the context in which said, this is, this is the way this prime minister operates. Um, right. let's, let's take these two things separately. Um, on the defence one, I give you that. Uh, I think it's a, it, it, it's a problem that um, 
that, that number 10 has, as you said, announced that it was going to have a big review of this, a very searching review, and then suddenly come out with this number. And there has to be a suspicion it's because the Prime Minister's won a battle with the Chancellor uh, in the past few days uh, to say, no, we're going to have a multi-year settlement on defence. And here's the big number. And if you like stealing some of the Chancellor's thunder from next week when there's going to be the, the talk about the, the spending review. So I'll give you that, though I think it is in a way good news that there's a big number and that there's a, a lot of emphasis on cyber defence. It's, it's, um, it's not ducking uh, the issue, though it is ducking the review, which he is committed to. But on the net zero, it seems to me he did, I mean, again, very precipitously, uh, come out with some numbers, but these this is a real commitment to try and do something. We've had a sudden announcement, much more sudden than the car industry was expecting, about it being brought forward to 2030 that the new petrol and diesel cars are going to be um, banned um, from being from being bought. All kinds of targets on household emissions, about jet zero on airline flights and so on. Now the industry has come out and said, "Great, this is going to need an awful lot more money," but this isn't incompatible with what he's trying to do. I mean, you know, we've been calling for him to have a plan for uh, doing something about net zero ahead of the, the climate summit, which is a, a year off, which he's hosting. Well, this is the beginnings of a plan. And uh, it will clearly, if he does it, going to create a lot of jobs, including in parts of the, the country that have very heavy industry, because those are the parts that are going to need help with emissions, like Port Albert and, 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 and Teesside and so on. So um, it's not nothing, is it? Well, it, the devil is in the, the devil is in the detail, and that is one of the areas where the prime minister always always stumbles. Yes, I believe that he is personally committed to COP twenty six in Glasgow next year being a pivot, a global pivot, uh, as big as maybe larger uh, than Paris, and the stars are in alignment for that with President elect Biden, with President Xi having moved in China, uh, all in all in agreement really broadly with the European Union. It could it could be massive. The detail of exactly how this money will be spent, the impact it will have, how EVs, electric vehicles are going to be rolled out, where the charging points are going to be, how the management of the 20-year transition from 2030 to 2050 as petrol and diesel cars remain in the second-hand market, um, how the jobs are created, how the investment goes, it's, it's, it's big on promises but low on detail. And he's been Prime Minister for quite a while now. That's the, that's the problem about it. And it's one that you, it's identified in our, in, in, in our IFG paper, that how do you drive it from the centre? The how, you know, the, the what is big slogans and the how is very imprecise, but, but, but big on the notion that speaking, speaking loudly and spending a bit more can actually drive things. Jill, let me bring you in here. You co-authored our Net Zero report earlier this year. And the first step of Johnson's relaunch, even before this week, was that with the swathe of green commitments. Were you impressed by what he said this week? Well, clearly the most important thing about what the Prime Minister did this week was he signalled that this was a government priority. And uh, one of the first points, I think the first point we made in our report on Net Zero, which we published in September, was that if this was going to happen, the Prime Minister absolutely needed to signal that this was a government priority. So he gets... Good marks for that. He's done that. He set out some quite interesting starters, and it's got a very good reception from a lot of maybe slightly desperate uh, green groups who are keen to show their support and enthusiasm. That's quite good. But as John says, there really is a sort of lot of detail missing so far. 
We are promised a lot more to come. One of the things about the Prime Minister's plan yesterday is it's a plan about plans. So there are lots of reviews to come. And he also promises, and this is one of the big points from our report, that we mentioned the need for much stronger coordination. He does mention something tantalisingly called the Net Zero Task Force, but we have no details on who's on that task force, what its remit is, beyond bringing a systems thinking approach. Um, That might be a bit of Cummings' legacy, who knows? He's very keen on these sorts of things. But it'd be very interesting to see what that actually looks like, because one of the things we argued very strongly was if this really was to be delivered, you couldn't ask a business department, not least a business department, which is relatively sort of underpowered and also struggling with the aftermath of coronavirus to take the lead on this. It really needed much more powerful central drive. Uh, Also, some vague hints people are trying to look at. One of the things that's really annoying, though, about the government's 10-point plan is it gives you some sort of sums about how much uh, CO2 equivalent this could save, but it doesn't say how far this all adds up to taking us to that net zero target, where the target the government's now got in law for 2050. And somebody very, uh, very usefully did some adding up. I have no idea whether his figures are right, but he suggests that the sort of measures that the government has announced so far would only take us halfway there. So I think there's a lot of work to be done in putting this into a much more systematic form. But we are promised a comprehensive plan by next summer. And what's really important there is both that there are detailed sectoral plans, but that they also add up and are stitched together so that they make sense in terms of a big management plan. Because there are, as your report points out, there are a lot of pieces to this, aren't there? There's the transport piece. There's the you know household piece. How do you, how do you, how do you get off gas boilers? There's the the are we going to do something about nuclear power piece or the energy generation? Each one of these could be a conventional government review, and somehow they've all got to come together in a plan. Yeah, and the government's got to be clear because an awful lot of this doesn't really depend on government action. A lot of people have focused on government spending commitments, but a lot of it will be private investment, but also a lot won't be done by central government. So there's a bit in the plan which just basically quite blithely asserts there will be an EV charging network uh, by 2030. If we're basically saying to people you can no longer buy petrol or diesel cars in 2030, if we buy one of these cars, we'll be able to find a relatively convenient place to charge it up. And that will depend on local government uh, as much as central government. So the government really needs to come through and do the heavy lifting on detailed plans. It also needs to think about whether the current sort of set of arrangements it has, the regulators, delivery board, is actually fit for purpose for delivering what is really a major, major, major transformation of the British economy. Uh, The Climate Change Committee is always stressing that actually it doesn't need to be economically costly, indeed could be economically beneficial if we get this right. But there are some big downsides if we get this wrong. And therefore, the government does need to convince that it's put those mechanisms in place to genuinely deliver at uh, at acceptable cost to taxpayers. Okay, great. Well, we're, we're going to come on, come on to all those points. Alex, let me just ask you one thing. There's some things that we really don't want to go out the door, do we, at the IFG? There's a leading question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at the door with Dominic Cummings, and that's, um, for example, civil service reform. Exactly, and um, both the uh, uh, you know, the uh, grit that Dominic Cummings uh, 
brought to issues like civil service reform and improving the skills in government and a focus on data and digital, as we're going to come on to talk about um, uh, later, are really, you know, really important things. I think Johnson and his cabinet team can lose some of the style, the antagonistic uh, briefing against civil servants and, uh, and, and all of that. But actually, quite a lot of the substance of that, Cummings didn't make much progress on the solutions, but did a did a decent job at setting out what the uh, what, what what the problems were. So definitely want to uh, want that co- to continue. Uh, and I think uh, a lot will depend on Michael Gove whether he you know if there is a cabinet reshuffle whether he stays in post uh, and whether he maintains that zeal for for reform. Because he does have that zeal. Uh, yes, he, he does. I think it's it's interpreted a little bit differently uh, from Dominic Cummings and the, the the team in the cabinet office working with Alex Chisholm, the chief uh, operating officer, uh, is a, a, a bit less sort of fire, fire and fury and a bit more in- incremental progress. But but he's definitely you know he's he's in the same sort of uh, uh, place as 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 Cummings on on the need to to reform the state and uh, also to to use the some of the opportunities that have come with spending all of this this money and the the, the coronavirus response to, to to reshape the state. I mean that's that's hard work and it's going to take time it's uh as we say in our piece of civil service reform is a thousand specific things it's not one big thing and john just a taster of a subject we're going to return to a lot in the the coming months but uh, scotland and and the uh, remarks which you've already referred to uh, the prime minister's remarks that devolution was a, a disaster how do you think he ought to be encouraging people to look at devolution pluses and minuses over the past 20 odd years it is clear Devolution has been a massive success in terms of its popularity uh, in in Scotland and Wales. It's also been a way of breaking and breaking up the power of the country and decentralising it, and that has been part of an overall plan that's seen the growth of uh, of mayors, the mayor of London, the mayor of Manchester, Greater Manchester, the mayor of Liverpool. Um, so it's been it's been part of a, a successful project by by UK governments uh, over a period. I think if you're a Scot. Uh, who actually can compare health and education standards to what we have in in England? Um, you'd have to honestly say that health and education standards have fallen in Scotland, which is, as somebody brought up in the Scottish education system, I don't like that at all. Um, but I think Gordon Brown's comment this week about uh, about the UK that the UK may not be breaking up, but definitely the governance is breaking down, is probably true and accurate because the loose-lipped comments by the Prime Minister people will widely regard that as him saying in private what he actually personally thinks, that devolution is a disaster. And he definitely, you know, he finds it um, an obstacle to him achieving what he wants, uh, in much the same way that Nicola Sturgeon finds devolution an annoying obstacle to what she wants to achieve. But I think maybe one of the resolutions uh, to this uh, is going to be, you know, if the UK is greened properly, if the economy is going to be greened, um, that is, you know, we could have the greening of the union. On to our second subject, which is Brexit, which we have mentioned. And along with the economy in Scotland, it's going to be one of the big themes facing Boris Johnson next year. The government's largely avoided talking about Brexit since the election, wanting to convey that it's done. But the talks with the EU are reaching their end game by almost any standards. The end of the transition period is looming, which means the crunch time in talks is here. Jill, we've talked about this even just a few weeks ago. Are we any closer to a deal? We're certainly uh, closer to the end of the transition, which is the absolutely firm deadline. Uh, People are now talking about a possible deal 
next week. David Frost, when he went off to Brussels, said he, you know, if the deal was to be done, he might have something to say uh, and to advise the Prime Minister on early next week. So it does look as though we are entering the end of the end game, but we have said that quite a few times before. But we really don't know. We still don't know. Um, clearly, at some point, there has to be a decision both on the UK and the EU side, because as numerous Institute for Government Publications made clear, there are processes to be gone through once they get the legal text. And people are talking about a 600-page legal text, short compared to the Canada agreement, but still requires a lot of work to be done. The EU has to do what it calls legal scrubbing, so checking it's okay with the lawyers, translate it into all the EU's official languages. It then has to go through a bunch of processes, including agreement of the European Parliament. People are already talking, though, about whether the target date of the December mid-December session can be met or whether there might have to be a special meeting between Christmas and New Year of the uh, European Parliament. And I think some people are even saying they might have to recall Parliament uh, to approve the deal and put through necessary legislation. New IFG explainer on that as well, just gone up uh, between Christmas and New Year. So we could be looking at a very, very hairy timetable in the last stages. Is the deadline a real deadline? The really real, real deadline is the 31st of December, unless lawyers can find some incredibly creative way of... Um, postponing that, which so far the EU lawyers certainly have said they can't. It really comes down to them. And uh, and we've said that actually you can do things to postpone implementation, so include that in, but you need to be thinking about that for really quite a long time in advance. And that seems to have gone. So I think we are approaching the real deadlines now. And I think if, if there aren't signs that there's going to be agreement in very early December, people will take the conclusion that actually we are heading for a no-deal Brexit, and then we may be looking to see what unilateral measures the EU will put in place to mitigate some of the effects, the sort of things that they were looking at last year uh, when we face the prospect of no with leaving with no withdrawal agreement. But also, the Prime Minister talked before about mini-deals, uh, see whether any of those uh, come into view, for example, on aviation on road haulage, which are two potential crunch areas where things could change dramatically if there's no deal on the 1st of January and no unilateral measures in place. And by road haulage, I mean, really, we mean kind of queues. And we mean trucks. We mean... We mean the lorries yeah, the, in Kenton and Calais and so uh, on. Well, it's the, it's the question whether the lorries... So we've got an issue about whether the lorries have the right paperwork to get, to, to get through the uh, channel tunnel or on a ferry... Uh, and whether they're allowed into Kent, which depends on having uh, having said they've got the right paperwork. The big issue on road haulage is that as a third country, there are very few permits available to drive in the continent. So the question is, will the EU lighten up on that? Because otherwise we could see road haulage grinding to a halt. That is not a metaphor. Um, and we've all heard a lot about fish and state aid, and presumably everyone who wants to be expert on this is by now quite a few people who never had that life ambition. But tell me one thing, what happens to financial services in this, particularly if there is no deal? So uh, probably uh, not much difference in between no deal and deal. Financial services aren't really a big issue in the trade negotiations. Uh, the UK announced last week the Chancellor put out 
new guidance on the UK financial services regime, which you could regard as a bit of high-grade trolling of the EU by the UK, because it makes a lot of about how it's going to run its own equivalence decisions, how they're going to be evidence-based, transparent, cooperative, you know, try and create a stable environment, all the things the UK doesn't think the EU is doing. And the UK has announced that EU firms will uh, be allowed to operate in the UK after Brexit. So in a sense, the UK has gone first. The UK is still waiting on a similar determination by the EU. The political declaration that was agreed last year said that that would happen, both sides would use their best endeavours to make sure that happened by the middle of the year. It hasn't. Uh, the EU may be holding this one hostage until the trade negotiations are concluded, because uh, we haven't seen that determination. But I think the really sort of interesting thing on financial services is, by and large, these are big, savvy businesses with a lot of value at stake. And most of them, uh, through last year, because of the repeated threats of a no-deal uh, Brexit, made arrangements of what they would do. And a lot have actually activated their contingency plans either to find ways of servicing their EU clients without uh, an equivalence decision. So that may be good news for those individual businesses and business continuity. They've moved assets abroad. They've you know, set up stuff, done deals with the, you know, got approval from the local regulators, moved some staff. But it's not good news for the British economy because that means they will not be doing that part of their business, at least in the UK. Less has gone than some people predicted. But it also means we lose the tax revenue that the UK exchequer depends on to quite a large extent. Remember, the City of London is quite a big cash cow for the exchequer. OK, well, we'll see. And John, is, is this um, still a Conservative Party problem or is John Johnson past that? The most recent statements by Keir Starmer are really clear that Brexit is happening. It's got to be made a success. Uh, and I think that's the right thing for him to say. It is, a, it is the Prime Minister's responsibility to get the best deal possible. Um, the Labour test was always the best deal for workers, which gave them some wiggle room to say, well, that may be a good test. That may be a good deal for the fishing industry, but it's not a good deal uh, for workers. The scale of the challenges that we're facing turning into the new year with the you know recovering from the recession caused by the pandemic, actually managing ourselves into the new normal with the with, vac with vaccination being rolled out with Brexit, uh, even the smallest um, turbulence uh, at the ports in Kent are going to cause massive tailbacks. We have issues, don't we, Jill, about the, uh, the supermarkets warning about what goods they will be able to take to Northern Ireland and sell in Northern Ireland. So we have, we have, we have there's going to be a long tail of this. I think some of the, the you know, the exports, uh, internal exports to Northern Ireland um, are going to make the pasty tax look like a, a walk in the park, I suspect, some of the outrage around that. So yeah, Johnson takes the responsibility. He's the Prime Minister not a party political football in that it's been accepted that Brexit is happening. Will the government get the full blame for everything? I suspect not always. You know, if, if the result falls far enough away from the actual decision, you know, we're a long way from the referendum now, or if there's a, a, a blurring of issues because the, the, the pandemic and the unique circumstances we're in too. I think 
this will this will go into the balance sheet, but it, it's not it's not going to determine. Um, it, it's just the event that he's had to manage through. Could it have been done better? Probably. Uh, from where he started, probably not. John, can I just ask you a question? How do you think Labour will vote if Boris Johnson comes back with legislation or needs his you know Parliament gets a say on? whether or not to go ahead with the deal. Do you think Labour will support it, abstain? Or if the Prime Minister has actually made some concessions to get a deal and faces a bit of a revolt, will, uh, will he get it through on the back of Labour votes? I think, I think yeah, that's a good question. Like, I think the situation is um, that Keir Starmer has used this year to get a voice for himself, a voice for the Labour Party, and to be, to be seen to be constructively driving uh, decisions. So, you know, the, the the current version of the lockdown we're in is really a Keir Starmer policy implemented by Boris Johnson. So I think this constructive opposition is going to be where it'll end up. And he, I think if the possibility is that Labour votes are needed to get the legislation through, Keir Starmer will, will assemble those votes and push those, push, and help push the legislation through. So we'll seek concessions, but in the end, we'll do what is needed in the national interest. And as we always say in these discussions, like the, the, the more certainty there is earlier, the better for business. Now, we're not that early now, but, but certainty still uh, of any sort, I think. So I wouldn't think it becomes a political football uh, from the Labour point of view, but there may be concessions that are, they, they, that are, that are called for you know, through the usual channels rather than necessarily on, on, on the floor, in the floor of the House. That's an interesting question. We're going to have to come back to that. It's like one of these Netflix series that keeps adding one more more, more series. Okay, all that are in the near future. Let's turn finally now to one theme that this government has trumpeted, and that's the use of data and technology to improve public services, which has been essential in the coronavirus crisis. And we've got a new report out this week, which looks at how well the government has done over the last eight months. And despite what you might think from things like uh, the tracing program and the A-levels, has uh, got some successes in there. Its author, uh, Gavin Freegard, joins us now. Gavin, warm welcome. Thanks, Bronwyn. So, on balance, success or failure? Um, well, as you were saying, it does feel strange to say this, but there are actually quite a few successes for government um, in how, how it's re- responded digitally to the crisis um, that they need to build on. So um, you've got, for instance, HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, you know, building three big new services, the Coronavirus Job Retention Scheme, Self-Employment Support and Sick Pay, in a matter of weeks. And those things basically reversed what the department normally does. HMRC usually takes in money, now it's paying out lots of money. So getting those launched um, in such a short space of time is a, is a real success. Of- just to be clear on that, it's not just building systems, that's getting real money into the bank accounts of real people. Exactly. Um, and you know, f- f- la- designing, building, functioning, launching, and actually you know, continuing to, to continue to work. Um, there are lots of other new services across government that have sprung up as well, such as you know, providing support for vulnerable people who are shielding, so being able to get them uh, supermarket deliveries and things like that. There are existing services like Universal Credit that were able to deal with demand that was, to use a word that's been bandied around a lot in recent months, completely unprecedented. The team running the government's website, gov.uk, were able to use data about how people were already using the website to get important information to people more quickly and clearly. And the civil service achieved all of this while switching to working remotely, something that it's not particularly used to. 
On the other hand, not everything went that well, of course. There was the app for contact tracing, there, were, there was the algorithm for A-levels, and there are also some really big questions about how government needs to grip digital identity verification, so how citizens can prove who they are, who they say they are, in order to use digital services. Has the government done enough to explain to people how it uses their data? No is the short answer to that. Um, and I, th- I think this has been a sort of long-running theme that's been really brought into focus by the pandemic. So your government obviously has quite a lot of personal data about us. Um, it could use that data more effectively to deliver better services, uh, to be able to build better policies and have a better understanding of the country it runs. Um, but we don't really know that much about how that happens at the moment. We don't really know where the big information flows, the big data flows are in government. We don't know exactly which legislation different departments are using. We don't know who's doing it well, who's doing it not so well. And I think if people think about how their personal data has been used during the the pandemic, some of the stories they'll think of are the A-level algorithm fiasco. They may think about um, the NHS app and how the data protection impact assessment sounds like a very technical document, but it's a very important one, wasn't completed um, at, at the right time. They may even think about the stories about being about police being able to access test and trace data, nothing to do with the app, I should stress. But you know, all of these stories can put sort of technology innovation and how government's been using personal data in quite a negative light. So I think government needs to be much more transparent about what's going on. It needs to be much more engaging with the public about the decisions that it's making. And it needs to have those debates in public and with the public if it really wants to make the most of new technology. And uh, And you hear it particularly anecdotally about the tracing, not so much the testing, and I think the two things probably ought to be separated but about the tracing people having no way to contest it if, if you know they're, they're suddenly contacted and they said well look I, I just couldn't have been uh, exposed um and um that, that breeding quite a bit of resentment i think that's a really interesting example as well because um there were lots of debates in fact we talked about them on a previous podcast about the there's sort of different types of tracing app that you could build so there was one option which was a centralized app which would mean that any data that was on your phone would be sent to a server held by the NHS, which would make some of those things a little bit easier to unwind. We ended up with a decentralised app, which means all the data is on people's phones, which means from a public health perspective, it's actually a bit more difficult to understand exactly what's going on. So some of the design choices that the government was essentially forced into because it was a decentralised app that Apple and Google uh, systems were sort of pushing sort of show some of the consequences of of, of those decisions. Yeah, I was just talking to a a carer who's looking after an elderly woman with dementia and she was contacted by it and she says, look, I don't have the app and and, uh, um, and I really have been at home apart from one hour breaks, you know, to walk in the park. I've been at home with this... this, um, my my, uh, my patient that I'm looking after, I think it's an old boyfriend getting at me. Um, malicious malicious report. But uh, you, you hear this kind of anecdotally, this kind of suspicion on it. When when you were talking before about the successes, though, you you were talking interestingly about the investment that government had made over years, and that actually that these represented um, that, that these were the, the the fruits, if you like, of quite a lot of government investment is that is that right absolutely i think you know overnight successes that have been built on a decade of hard work um a, a quote that came up a few times um, in our research was you know people at the government digital service and elsewhere saying that they were standing on the shoulders of giants because you know, since gds was created in the early 2010s 
there's been a lot of investment in bringing people um, with digital skills into government and improving processes for how these things work and actually building digital products um, which can help people. Um, just to give a few very quick examples of that, things like uh, gov.uk has a, a design system which helps people sort of have templates for when they're building new services. That was incredibly helpful in building new ones during the pandemic. You've got um, processes for ensuring that teams working on digital projects are empowered and they can sort of iterate and adapt as they go along. Again, really important. And um, for, for as much as you know, there are problems with Verify, which is the digital identity verification system. I was, I was, I was going to ask you this, yeah. Um, so we can come back to that in a second. But as much as there have been problems with that, if you look at one of the other um, sort of building blocks uh, that GDS have invested in, Notify, which allows you to plug something into a service so you can send text messages and emails and you know, things like that. Yeah, that's been used by hundreds of new services across the public sector, not just central government, local government government and the wider sector as well um, to be able to get really important new services up and running. So that sort of being able to build on what was already there has been absolutely vital. Well, I just wanted to, you mentioned Verify, come on to the failures because um, you've mentioned briefly, I mean, two of the failures during the coronavirus uh, pandemic, the, the, the tracing app and the A-level algorithm. Um, now as famous nationally or infamous as, as uh, government um, technology can possibly be. Uh, and I wonder whether you thought that that was just a result of them being constructed very quickly, because you've also referred to Verify, and all the talk about standing on the shoulders of giants. Verify was a program to create a, a digital identity for everyone online uh, for dealing with government things that has had loads and loads and loads of investment over many years and still has really not worked. So, you know, short-term things don't work. Some of the long-term things don't work. What, what, is there anything we can say about failure? I think I think we, sh- we should probably take them slightly separately. I think the, the reasons for Verify, which it has to be said was adapted during the crisis to be able to help people sign up to things like universal credits. It's not, even with Verify, not an entirely negative story. As you say, Bronwyn, those problems have been long-standing. It, a lot of departments never quite felt it did all of the things that it needed to do. Um, there's probably been an element of you know, the departments not liking things imposed on them or built by the centre um, and you know digital identity is a, is a really difficult problem to solve you know there are lots of sensitivities around how that data is used how it works and um, the various different bits of, of government needs to join up I think if we look at the the sort of the failures and the app and the algorithm and um, during the pandemic I think the main thing that binds those together is less the fact that they were built quickly, though clearly they were and they didn't have um, things that they could build on uh, as easily as a lot of the other things. I think it's tech solutionism, um, which is quite a useful phrase. The idea that you know just building some shiny new technology can solve all of your problems. You know, incredibly complex systemic problems can be solved by waving a magic wand at some data scientists and some shiny new apps the world doesn't work like that um so i think it's you know if, if you are going to use technology you need to think about how it can achieve the ends that you want how it can help the system that you're trying to build rather than being just the system in its own right i mean gavin there was that moment wasn't there when the prime minister referred to the exam result algorithm as a mutant algorithm which seemed to suggest that it existed sort of independently of any policy maker or decision maker 
which does, did seem a bit, you know, blame the algorithm Ex- rather than the people that thought this system could work. Exactly, Jill. And I think the, you know, the interesting thing about him calling that a mutant algorithm was in a sense, the algorithm did exactly what Gavin Williamson had asked for it to do, um, which was to try to sort of ward off grade inflation. Mm-hmm. I suppose, again, the, the sort of positive flip side of that is that we've seen political direction, clear political direction being part one of the success factors in the things that have worked during the pandemic so you know all of the hmrc services you know, very clear direction from the chancellor and from the treasury also a really good um thing around universal credit where very deliberate decisions were made knowing that there'd be loads of first-time claimants the priority was to make sure that those people were paid they knew that there'd be trade-offs that there might be you know sort of greater fraud and error as a result but actually the decision was very clear it was let's prioritize getting the money out to people um, and then decisions and adaptations were able to be made accordingly very briefly the sort of the moonshot tech solutionism that uh, gavin was talking about there i think is uh, very relevant for net zero and the climate um, uh, stuff that we were talking about uh, earlier as well there's a, you know uh, rely on the tried and tested stuff uh, and not uh, not uh, big uh, solution schemes that seem to promise the world um, uh, you know carbon capture and storage we've been talking about for years and years actually the, the, it's the incremental wind farms and uh, electric technology that, um, that 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 we need to apply and there are lots of different solutions because the moonshot, as you're describing, this was something that Dominic Cummings was very much personally involved in, is the idea of testing pretty well everyone in the country. And there have been a lot of concerns from statisticians about this saying, for a start, it's going to leave loads of false positives, uh, meaning that lots of people will be told, um, uh, and, and false negatives, meaning that people will be told that they're clear of coronavirus when they're not, and, and the opposite, and that it's actually quite quite dangerous and misconceived i mean it, it, it um is this is this program going to survive on the cummings departure uh, the, the moonshot program i mean supposedly that's what he's yeah. working on now that's uh, that's that's the full-time job until uh, in, until christmas mm-hmm. i mean uh, the government's got uh, too much invested in it uh, in terms of uh, political capital and uh, actual money for it to be abandoned in entirely i wouldn't be terribly surprised if it um evolves into something that's a little bit more um realistic uh, and uh, we end up talking a lot more about vaccine distribution than we do about um uh, about moonshot testing Okay, the Moonbeam program. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. Now, we began this podcast by talking about the dramatic departure of a data-obsessed maverick with deep concerns about civil service turnover. That's where we're going to end it. Gavin, you're leaving the IFG. <laughs> what are you going to do? Well, thank you for that. Not often, I think, is it coincidence that there's a vacancy at number 10? For, uh... I think this is the second time on this podcast I've had to deny that I'm about to go and work for number 10. Um, so um, what I'm off to do, well, I'm, I'm off to go um, freelance um, from the 1st of January, which is very exciting. I've been incredibly lucky um, at the IFG, not only to work with brilliant people at the Institute, but lots of people across civil society and government. So hopefully um, I'll have the opportunity to do some interesting things with um, those people on sort of data, digital openness um, and that kind of thing, uh, which is really exciting. Uh, I'm also um, going to be working up a book idea. Um, and Alex and I were talking about this earlier. I phrased that very carefully to not completely commit myself to actually having to do one. Um, but um, that's uh, that's the other sort of big thing that I'm planning to do from, from January. Well, I've been very keen that you uh, you do this because it sounds a great idea. Though we can't give you a plug or a book launch until you've at least written them. 
a, a few chapters of it, but um, right. <laughs> definitely more come on up. And in the great tradition of IFG departures, you're still going to be working quite a bit with us, aren't you? So fans of Data Bytes, the series you created, the event series, are going to be um, still have something to look forward to. That's right. Well, fans of this podcast won't forget these heady early days when we let you into the studio to play us your data sonification tracks. Are you going to be working on an album as well? Um, I mean, maybe it'll be be available for Christmas uh, 2021. Who knows? <laughs> um, I definitely need to revisit some of those uh, those greatest hits from from last autumn. I think and uh, see what else could be done. Are you by any chance going to give us a last hurrah in song? Well, I think it's important to leave the audience uh, wanting more, so uh, they'll just have to wait until the the album. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. Well, I'm sorry for that, because uh, our, our department of Welsh singing is going to be uh, diminished, and uh, the, the large Welsh contingent uh, at the IFG slightly diminished. So Alex Thomas is a fairly new <laughs> recruitment for that. Um, well, more to come, indeed, from Gavin in the future. That's the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Alex Thomas, Jill Rutter, Gavin Freegard, and John McTurnan, and thanks to all of you at home for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more of our discussions, then please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. There are some terrific new shows for you there, including a Brexit final countdown special and a fascinating discussion on pandemic fatigue and compliance with coronavirus restrictions. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Please do give us a review. We always like them. We always read them. And of course, you can find all our review, including Gavin's paper and our piece on how Johnson can reset his government at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. So that's it for today. The government is resetting. The age of super forecasting is over. So here's a super forecast end on. Inside Briefing will be back, same time, same place, next week. Bye.